0: Open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 15, John chapter 15. Christianity centers on love. It is truly the religion of love. And if you compare throughout history, you cannot find a religion that is more focused on love than the religion of Christianity. It is the Bible that explains, defines, brings true love. 1 John 4 verse 8 says God is love. Verse 16 of the same chapter says it again. God is love. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. That means the incarnation was motivated by love. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that Christ died. So not only is Christmas love, but Easter is love. Good Friday is love. More than that, John 14, 31, the same page that you're on. Just look back a few verses. It says, I love the Father. Which means that Christ began With love for the Father. And more than that, he wants the entire world to know. Which, if we had no other verses, would count for missions. The entire world must know that there is this unusual love between the Father and the Son. Our entire religion finds as its fountain and as its source the doctrine of love. Just think of the metaphors, the pictures that God has given us to remember our religion. A husband and a wife. God is a father and he has a son. A shepherd and his sheep. A king and his people. A father and his children. What do these metaphors mean except love? What do they all have in common? Is that the head loves those underneath. We have before us today a picture that is complex. A picture that is fascinating. A picture that does justice to the title of the book that D.A. Carson wrote. The difficult doctrine of the love of God. The doctrine of the love of God is not only difficult, it is complex. It is heavy. It's more than you can carry. And I'm going to attempt to give you some revelation of the love of God today. And if you go away from here without some sense of being overwhelmed, then either I have not taught well or you have not listened well. There ought to be a sense today of real drowning in this concept that is too great for us. Because this passage speaks about love more than ever in the last night of our Lord. You will recall that John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is the last night of Jesus Christ. They will put him to death In just a few hours, he is right now walking to meet Judas and the ruler of the world, Satan. He's walking through the garden and he points out, do you see that vine? I am the true vine. He began teaching in the upper room with these words over this motivation. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them Up until the end. Which means what you're about to read in John chapter 13. That was John 13 verse 1 that I quoted. John 13 right up until the end of the book is a record, an unusual record of his love. So when a church refers to the final week of our Lord as the passion week. Or when they refer to the crucifixion as the passion of Christ. It comes from that. Jesus loved them right up until the end. And it is at the cross that we see the supreme evidence of his love. I have marked in my Bible from John 13 to 17, every time the word love is used, it is constant. But nowhere more constant than right here in chapter 15. And so even though we had one sermon on the the 11th commandment back in chapter 13, do you remember that? I give you a new commandment that you love one another. And so we did have a sermon on loving one another back in chapter 13. But this morning's message will be the amazing doctrine of God's love. And I would like to deliver one main point to you. And it is this. Christ pours out divine love and he expects the same in return that's the point of this passage and let me try to show that to you we'll look down in verse number 9 do you see the word love in verse 9 how many times someone just tell me how many times is the word love in verse 9 three times how many times in verse 10 two times how many times in verse 12 how many times in verse 13 Do you see the word friend in verse 13? Do you see the word friend again in verse 14? Look down in verse 15 and see if you can find the word friend there. The word friend is actually a noun and it's a different Greek word for love. Perhaps you've heard these words before. Agape. Have you ever heard of the word philos? Philos is another word for love. The word friends here is the word philos. It's love. Lovers. The ones I love and the ones who love me. So when you see friend, you could think, that's love as well. Go down to verse number 17. Do you see the word love there? Now the word love is not in verse 16, but the idea of love is in verse 16. Can anyone look in verse 16 and tell me where is the idea of love in verse 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you. First John four nineteen. We love him because he first loved us. What we have here is a passage of scripture that more than any other in all of the gospels uses the concept of love. In fact, if you want to find the word love used as often, you're going to have to go to another book written by John. 1 John chapter 4 if you want to find love referenced as often. This section stands for the love of God the way Paul the Apostles 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians stands as love. And so today I'd like to give you two points in the message. First is right from verse 9. The Father is the fountain of love. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I want to ask you how has the Father loved Jesus? And then you see in verse 9 it says, so I have loved you. Well, how has Jesus loved us? That's the first point. I'm going to attempt to show to you how in some small way the father loved the son and then how the son loves us. And then secondly, going from verse 10 to the end of the passage, we're going to look at evidences for true love. True love will always have evidence. And I'd like you to see that. So let's jump right into verse number nine and the first point. The father is the fountain. He is the source. He is the head. He is the creator. He is the beginning of all love. He is the artist who paints the words. He is the musician who writes the score of anything that ever can be called love. If you ever think you knew what the word love meant, it's only because somehow you're borrowing a concept that first came from him. As the Father, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, how does the Father love the Son? What would you say about that? Have you ever been to the councils of God? Have you ever walked through heaven and looked out and talked to the Father and seen the way He loves the Son? Could your little mind that has a beginning and an end, a birthday and a death day, Could your mind even understand it? Would it be like an ant watching a wedding? How could you possibly understand how the father has loved the son? There are innumerable ways. But in my meditation, I came up with four that I think will be helpful for us. Let me give you these four. How does the father love the son? Number one, as a father loves a son. The same substance. You love your son because he is similar to you. He has an essence like your essence. You don't love your son like you love a pole or a rock or grass. Because we all know there's a great difference between me and grass. Me and a dog. Me and earth. A car, it's not the same. God loves his son as he is the same essence. John 10 verse 30, I and my father are one. Every way that the father looks toward the son, in every facet and every perspective, in every day, In every kind of way that the father contemplates the son, he sees in him his own perfections. Hebrews 1 that we're memorizing this year. There are eight listed perfections in verses 2 and 3. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. He is the brightness of the father's glory and the exact representation of his person. So that when the father looks to the son, he says, I see something wonderful about myself in him. Because the son is the exact essence of the father. Secondly, how does the father love the son? With complete and perfect pleasure. I said that the father is the fountain of all love, but he's also the fountain of all joy. Because there is a great connection between joy and love, such that it's not possible to have joy without love. Joy is, as we studied in the fruit of the spirit, it is this intense longing for that which is best, highest, and purest. Joy, as C.S. Lewis said, could even be called a particular species of pain. Like a husband who's separated from his wife, he longs for his wife, and it is not comfortable, but he wouldn't take away that longing for all the world. If you said to him, I know you've been away from your wife for six months while you've been in prison, while you were unjustly taken, as the Scottish Covenanters were. I read just recently about a man who was put in prison for eight years and separated from his wife. And he said, I long to see her again. And if you could come to that man and say, I'll give you a thousand rand. And that, that will take care of your, your longing for your wife. The man would say, I don't want your money. I wouldn't give up my longing for my wife, for any cost. And if you said, but is your longing comfortable? He would say, not at all. But I won't give it up because it's a part of love to joy, to desire that which is highest and best and most beautiful. The father is the fountain of all joy as he is the fountain of all love. Which means that since the son's perfections mirror the father's perfections, The father's pleasure in the son is unending. He has always had pleasure. When he looks at the son, he sees himself, which is always perfect. Proverbs 8 verses 30 and 31. Wisdom speaks to Jehovah and says, I was with you every day, rejoicing in all that you have done. That's a picture of Jesus Christ. The father was with the son before you were around. Before your father's or your father's fathers were here. Before any angel flew across the sky. It was the father, the son, and the spirit. And they daily rejoiced in each other. How does the father love the son? With complete and unending joy. The word party is far too weak. The word excitement Carries nothing to think of the father and the son in their infinite happiness with each other. Number three, how does the father love the son? With the greatest of all capacity. Do you know the word capacity? It's like the tank of a vehicle that can hold 75 liters of petrol. I once put 74 liters in my Prado. For the 75 liter tank, that capacity has an end. And you sometimes see people shaking their taxis, trying to squeeze a few more drops of petrol into it. Because their capacity has a beginning and an ending. But imagine if your fuel tank had no end. Maybe you feel that way when you're filling it up. Imagine if your fuel tank had no end. God has no ending To his ability to enjoy and see the son. And the son's pleasures have no end because they are exact representation of the father's. And so when you come to worship God, your mind and your time and your energy are so short. You, this is nearly blasphemous. You will fall asleep after seeing some pleasures of Jesus. The father never does. He looks and sees and rejoices and takes more and more and his plate always is full of more and he's never done enjoying the sun. You can take pleasure in God and then say I've had enough. But he can't have enough because his capacity goes on and he can't have enough because there's always more in Christ because he is the representation of the Father. Since the mind of the father can take in all the universe at once, then he is able to enjoy more of Christ than we are. And since he takes in more of the son's beauty, then he responds with even greater affection and adoration. You and I love him, but we ought to weep for our love is so pathetic and tawdry to give back to him. The father always gives the right love to the son because he always takes in all of the pleasures and beauties and comforts and happinesses of the son. It's as if just a corner of the curtain is pulled back in John chapter 17. We're going to get there. And when we get to John chapter 17 in a few months, you're going to say, don't ever leave this chapter because in the very end of that chapter, the son pulls back the curtain and says, I pray for them that they would know the love that you have for me and that the same love that the Father has for the Son would be in them and then more than that, that I would be in them. It's too much for us. We see the Son speaking to the Father and we either turn away with cold, dead eyes, proving that we have no eyes to see, or we are amazed and it's like filling a cup from, a, from a, an ocean. It, it's too much for me. I can only take this much. I'm created. I have a beginning and an end. Oh, oh this is more than I can bear. With pleasure and joy. How does the father love the son? Number four. Without even a shadow of hindrance. There are no speed bumps on the road. Nothing to impede his progress. He does not travel at 40 Ks or 50 or 100. He doesn't travel on that road at 200 or 1,000 or 10,000. The speed of light is like you walking compared to the speed at which the father with unhindered progression moves to the son. He has never had to overlook any weakness or failure or inability or sin in the son. When God looks down at us, what does he see in us? But when he looks at the sun, he never stops. He never slows down. There's never one misunderstood word. How much better would your marriage be if there was never one misunderstood word? How much better would your marriage be if you never once had to pull up your spiritual resources to somehow overlook what she just did? How much better would your marriage be If everything he did was an act of love, if there was complete understanding, well, that exists between the father and the son. The father's love has never paused to refresh itself because it was exhausted. A husband loves his wife, but he reaches a point where he needs to sleep. He reaches a point where he says, I need to take a break. But this father needs no breaks. Because his energy is infinite in the love and enjoyment that he takes in the son. There are four. There are many more that I could give. But let us take these four now and apply these to the son. Because look at verse 9. Without a shadow of hindrance is number four. Look at verse 9. As the father has loved me. I've just given you four ways that the father loves the son. But now look at the next phrase. So have I loved you. So in the same way that the Father loves the Son, He has loved us. But how can that be? Did you just hear what I said? How is it that the, father, that the Son can love us as the same substance? It's true. He took on flesh so that He could give to us this same kind of communicated love that was between the father and the son. He took a body. Christmas is not a mild thing. Save up your money and have a party. Give gifts and let your children grow up knowing Christmas is the best day of the year. Because that's when the son took on flesh so that he could communicate his love to us. That is a great thing. When he took on flesh, he became like us. And even to this day, he still retains his resurrected body in heaven. He rose again with that body and he will come again with that same body. And our resurrected bodies will stand with his in all eternity. And that resurrected body of Christ, that glorified body, will so display itself that for all eternity we may come near to the actual physical body of our Lord and shake His hand and bow down and kiss His feet and be near to Him and hear that voice. Not the unusual heavenly voice that somehow, is it like a violin when an angel speaks? Is it like a trumpet blast? But we'll hear that voice, the kind of voice that comes from blood coursing through veins. The kind of voice that comes from air moving through a mouth, the warm, real, natural voice like your mother or your father, but better. You'll hear that voice because he loves his body as a head loves the body, the same substance. The second one was with complete and perfect pleasure. How can that be? How can the son love us with complete and perfect pleasure? Because when Jesus looks down at his people, he sees in them the image of God. He sees in them all of his own wisdom in knitting together as Psalm 139 says, he knitted us, he sewed us together when we were in our mother's belly. Oh, study biology. Students, go to school and read about biology. Why? So that you can see the way the sun loves us in every kind of glory of the human eye. And it's 70 million rods and cones that receive light and turn it backward and upside down. And the mind twists it around to make the pictures seem the right way. Oh, that's wonderful. And the ear, the amazing ability of the ear to take in sounds and even look beautiful right on our faces. Every part of the human body, from the breathing, the pulmonary system, to the blood circulating. I've heard, I read in a book, I don't know if this is true, it seems hard for me to believe this is true. If the veins and arteries were stretched out of any person, they would reach from here to the moon. That seems hard to believe that's true, but that's what I read in a book. That if the veins and arteries of any human body were stretched out end to end, I can't believe how that would be, but they're long. However they are. And God designed that all. And even more, he designed a system to reproduce so that God made it so that it will happen. How how can this be? How can it be that there's an elimination process so that when you eat any dirt, any filth, he's got a a system for that. It all works out. How can it be that he puts toenails and fingernails and even eyebrows? What are the eyebrows for? Imagine yourself without eyebrows. Look at all the people around you and imagine them without eyebrows. He put it for beauty. But not only that, did you know the eyebrows stop some of the light and allow you to see better? People without eyebrows have reduced vision. He put it there for beauty and he put it there even for usefulness. Everything about the human body was done to demonstrate his love for us and His wisdom and power in us. And even more so in Ephesians 4 verse 24 it says, When we are born again, we are recreated in righteousness, holiness. God has made us so glorious that he, the, the Lord Jesus loves us with this complete and perfect pleasure. What about this? Christ loves us with the greatest of all capacity. That is, as I mentioned for the Father, Christ has no ending to His ability to rejoice in us. He knew us before we were born. And in his mind we are already glorified. Have you noticed this about the golden chain from Romans 8 verses 29 and 30? In the golden chain there are five verbs. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined. And the ones he predestined he also called and those he called, he justified and those he justified, he glorified. But look back at those and look at the tense of the verbs in each of those for the ones that he foreknew, he also predestinated and the ones that he predestinated, he also called and the ones that he called, he also justified and the ones he justified, he also glorified. Every one of those verbs is in the past tense. Have you been glorified yet? In the mind of Christ you are. That's what that verb means. That's the reason it's in the past tense. The foreknowing was in the past. The predestinating was in the past. For some of you the calling is still in the future. He hasn't yet called you out of your sins. And out of darkness into light. But in the mind of Christ he says. I see it as if it's in the future. Because it's so certain. Number four, he loves us without a shadow of hindrance. This is the most mind-boggling of all. How can our sin not be a speed bump on the road of his enjoying pleasure? How can Christ love us without any hindrance? How can that be? That can't. That must be blasphemy. No, it's true because he views us in himself. In Christ, we have no spot Ephesians 1 verse 5 in Christ we have no blame in Christ there is no guilt Ephesians 1 verse 6 how can it be this is the beauty of being in Christ that when a man is in Christ all that he has done is forgotten and he's seen in Christ Psalm 103 it says as far as the east is from the west So far as he removed our transgressions from us, like a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on us. Christ looks down and he sees not all the foolish, backward worry that you have had over the last four weeks. You've had a lot of it. Try to count up all the things you worry about that never happen. It's an amazing list. Try to count up all the times you said, oh, oh no, and then nothing bad really happened. Try to count up all the times you've doubted his promises. Try to count up all the times when you should have prayed and you didn't. Try to count up all the times when you sang a song to God and didn't even think about him. Try to count up all the times that you've had some affection for God that was more fitting to ice cream. But you offered it to God himself. Try to count up all the times that you have said the name of God and not feared him at the same time. Try to count up all the times that on the Lord's day you have thought more of yourself or your comfort than our blessed Savior. Try to count up all the times that you have lusted or desired money or comfort when you should have desired evangelism. Try to count up all the times that a sinner has walked by you and you have not even cared about his eternal soul. And yet, our Lord does not see those things, but he counts us righteous in the beloved. It's too much. It's too much. The Father loves the Son without a shadow of hindrance, and best of all, the Son loves us in that way. Oh, I wish somehow I could put love in your hearts, but if this explanation doesn't do it, then I don't know how to do it. This love will seem like a small thing to you if one of three things is true. You'll hear this love and you'll think, oh, move on. When is he going to be done if one of these three things is true? Number one, you have never wept over your sin. If you have never wept over your sin, if you've not known what it is to have a day or a week or better, a month or a year of really being broken over your own sin, then you'll think about this love that it's, it's a small thing. You'll take it as two rand. If you haven't gone through 2,000 rand of conviction. Number two, this love will seem like a small thing if you have not yet had right thoughts of God. Have you ever pondered how high He is? How holy? How beautiful and glorious He is? This love will seem like a very small thing if you have not thought much of God. If you can say the name of the Lord Jesus as if it were a curse word Or if you can hear others say it and it does not bother you, you would not endure conversation with a man who spoke about your mother in a disrespectful way. You overheard him speaking to a colleague. And these two were talking and they mocked your mother. Would you be quiet? And yet we hear the name of the Lord Jesus and sometimes say it ourselves. You will think this love is a small thing if you have never feared God. Number three, you will think this love is a small thing if you have not come to grips with what happened at the cross. I wonder, has there ever been a Sunday afternoon between the morning service and the evening worship when you have finally been able to get some time just to think and pray and to ponder, to read, and realized what happened when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has there ever been a time when you have understood what he said? It is finished. Or into your hands I give my spirit. If you have not come to grips with what happened at the cross. Then you will not be able to understand the joy of the love of Christ. But this love is the chief joy of heaven. It will go on into all eternity. Faith will not go on. Perseverance will not go on, but love will. Repentance will not go on. Evangelism will not go on, but heaven is a world of love because all through eternity, love will spring up more and more. It will spring from enjoying God himself, It will be the flower that produces new blossoms every day. It will be, as Revelation 22 says, the tree that gives 12 different kinds of fruit for each month of the year. It's the tree that never stops blossoming. And it always has some new pleasure and comfort for you. Mozart, uh, the, the Austrian composer Mozart, once met a beggar and he asked for money and Mozart had no money. So he said, here, step into this coffee shop with me. He stepped into a shop, pulled out a piece of paper and Mozart was a genius who was playing the piano at four years old. Mozart pulled out a piece of paper and wrote down some music notes, a little minuet, gave it back to the beggar and said, walk down the street on the left is my publisher. Give him this and say it's from Mozart. He'll sell it and you can take the money. Mozart was a fountain. Everything he wrote, literally everything he wrote on music has been published. There was a man named Kerschel who, after Mozart died, gathered together every paper and it reaches into the hundreds of published documents from Mozart. Literally every musical um, composition that Mozart ever wrote was published. How could that be? Because it was as if Mozart had an unending fountain of creativity where he could constantly put notes together in a way that's beautiful. In heaven, you will see the love of God and say, this is too much. And yet there will be more. And you'll say, it's now been how many years? A thousand? A million? I can't tell. It all blurs together up here. And maybe you'll talk with the and he'll say, yes, I've kind of forgotten the time as well. Has it been a day? Or has it been a million days And you'll say, but it seems like there's more. And you'll say, yes, let's stop talking about the past and go further up and further in to find more beauties of God and of his love. God himself is love, this love that flows out from the sun. And I hope with this examination of verse nine and with this peering into God himself, you will have found food for your soul. And if you're outside of Christ, don't you want to know this love? And come, come and welcome to Jesus. What are you waiting for? What holds you back from saying, oh Christ, love me in this way. Oh, let me see something of these pleasures. But now I want to show you the second point of this message, which is the rest of the passage. I'd like to show you that true love always demonstrates itself. It always shows, it always acts, it always moves. It can't be still. There's nothing static or stagnant. It's the river that keeps flowing, not the pool that has algae on the top. This list in the rest of the passage is going to be a blended list. So I think I'll help you by putting this up here. Let me put on the board here, a list of Christ's loves for us, evidences that Christ loves us and then evidences that the believer loves Loves Christ. So as we go through this passage. You can see them and tell them out to me. And we'll, we'll exegete this together. There are at least 11 of them. 11 that I've found. Let's look at these. In verse 9. As the fathers loved me. So have I loved you. Continue in my love. The first evidence that a believer loves. Is Perseverance. Perseverance. If a believer loves Jesus, he will persevere. What is more difficult than doing right over and over? Time is the great test. Because time works on the human spirit in a way that no other faculty does. A man can speak very well and give his testimony and say, I'm going to do these great things. Show me that next week and next month and show me that next year and in 10 years. It is nothing to say Oh, yes, I'll be a Christian. You show me perseverance over time. That's the mark of love. The false Christian makes a very impressive beginning, but he falls away very quickly. The true Christian is the one who says, I'm going to go on day after day. And then the true Christian very quickly realizes, I've got a petrol tank that's only half a liter, and I'm supposed to get the whole way to Joburg. You're going to have to call out to God. And he'll do what's written in Isaiah 40, verse 31. You'll mount up with wings as eagles. You'll run and never get tired. You will walk and never faint. Have you heard of the story of the tortoise and the hare? This is from the ancient Greek Aesop. He wrote the story of the tortoise and the hare. The hare mocked. The bunny mocked the the tortoise. The shibodze. Said, ah, you can't. You can't beat me, I'm too fast. And the the turtle said, oh really? Well, let's have a race. And so the turtle kept plodding along and the hare shot off. After he looked back, he couldn't see the turtle anywhere and he said, how this guy wait for him? In fact, let me just take a little nap. And the hare took a nap under the tree. He went to sleep and the tortoise kept walking until he reached the end. And just before he crossed the line, he called out in his turtle voice, here I am. And the bunny shot up and ran as fast as he could, but the tortoise easily crossed the line. What's the message of that but perseverance? What's the message of Hebrews three fourteen that we memorized this year? That those who hold firm their confidence to the end will be saved. Same thing as in Colossians 1, verse 23. If we hold firm our confidence until the end same thing as in John 8 verse 31 you are my friends if you continue those who continue demonstrate that they love Christ look in verse 10 what's the next evidence of love there's one for believers and there's one for Christ how do you know that a believer loves Jesus in verse 10 someone tell me verse 10 how do you know that a believer loves Jesus give me one word for that that's a noun Obedience. How can you tell if someone loves Jesus? They'll simply obey. They'll stop all the talk and they'll begin to perform. They'll follow the words on the back of the taxi in Elam. Mintiro, yi Works. Talk. Yeah, words are so easy. I've mentioned this before, but years ago when I first arrived here, I was learning Venda from another man in Chikota. And he told me, oh... If our country could be built on words, it would be the most beautiful country in the world. He said it might even be heaven. Our people have so many words. Obedience, works, talk. And in verse 10 he says, Oh, if you really obey, then you're in my love. How we know a true Christian? He has a lifestyle of obedience. When I say a lifestyle of obedience, I don't necessarily mean he goes to church all the time, although that's part of obedience. I mean obedience to the laws of Christ. And that brings me to the second evidence. Look in verse 10. This is a hard one, but can anyone see from verse 10? What's the evidence that Jesus loves us in verse 10? Difficult, but see if you can get it. Notice that Christ gives these commandments in verse 10. If you keep whose commandments? Do you realize that until 1929, the Tsongas did not have the commandments of Jesus? It is love that God gave them. 1936 for the Vendas. Vendas, you haven't finished 100 years with the commandments of Jesus. It is love that he gave these to you. English speaking people got the commandments of Jesus in 1384. We went through hundreds and thousands of years without these commandments. It was love that gave them. The Jews did not have these commandments until 30 AD. They had to live all their lives. As the Old Testament was, it was darkness and not light. It was the shadow. When Christ came, he gave his commandments, which is why Matthew 17 verse 5, when he goes up on the mountain with Peter and James and John, what does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him, not who. Elijah and Moses. Who was on the mountain with Jesus in Matthew 17? Jesus appears with Elijah and Moses. Elijah stands for all the prophets. Isaiah to Malachi. Moses stands for the five books of Moses. The law and the Pentateuch. And Jesus stands in their middle conversing. And the voice booms out from heaven like thunder. Listen to my son. He has his commandments. He has words for you. He has the new covenant. You listen to him. He comes as the prophet, priest, and the king. He has something for you. Christ loves us and proves it by giving His laws. Number one, He gives laws. He gives His laws. Look down at verse number 12. What is the evidence that Christ... I'm sorry, what is the evidence that believers love God... In verse 12. What's that? Can I put up here mutual love? Mutual love. Verse 12. You will know a Christian because he will love other Christians. Why is that so important? Because if you love other Christians more than you love your flesh and blood... It sends the message that you have been bound by a new parent. You've been born to a new parent. It shows the message. I should have, I'm sorry, I mixed my metaphors. It shows that you've been born to a new parent or bound to a new master. When you begin to love someone who's different from you, who lives in a different home, who maybe is different situation in life from you, it shows this person has a new master and a new father. It is vitally important, as Jesus says in John 13, 35, just a few months ago we studied this, that you must love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you have loved one to another. Because when Christians love each other, everyone knows there's a new Lord there. There's a new parent there. And I will remind you, some foolish people have written books on this saying, we need to give our money to pay for poor people in Kauteng. Or in Gauteng they need to give their money to pay for poor people in Limpopo. That's not true. This is not a political declaration. This is not saying that we should raise taxes and give grants to everyone. And some foolish teachers have written, like Ron Sider, wrote a book arguing, his book was entitled Rich Christians in the Age of Hunger. And he says, we'll know that we're Jesus' disciples if we go find poor people in Thailand and give them money. False. We will know that we are Christians when we find someone who's born again and we treat them like a brother. When we treat them like our closest friend, even closer than our father who's not yet converted. Even closer than our son who's now wayward. When we treat that person as if he's a brother or a sister, someone says, There's a new parent at work here. Verse 13. Christ loves us in verse 13. In what way? What is the evidence that Christ loves us in verse 13? He sacrifices for us. The believer's measure for loving one another is the example of Christ and Christ laid down his life. All the other evidences of love are secondary because what does it say in verse 13? Greater love. No one has greater love than this, which tells you that the cross is the pinnacle of all the love of God. He died for us. I asked yesterday when I was preaching, when Jesus died, what did he do? And I'll ask you right now. I'll give you three options. A, B, C. You, you, you see if you can choose or you can pick letter D. I don't know. Letter A. What was Jesus doing when he died? Was he a good example for us? Letter B. Was he removing the father's wrath? Letter C, was he paying the debt to Satan? A, B, C. Which one was it? Letter A. If you think letter A, you can raise your hands. Letter A, he was a good example. Letter B, he was um, removing the father's wrath. Letter C, he was paying a debt to Satan. Let's, let's vote right now. Letter A, who says he was being a good example? Don't look around, look, look up. <laughs> who wants to vote? Letter A, who's going to vote? okay. Letter B, I should say first one, I don't know. Letter B, removing the father's wrath. Letter C, paying a debt to Satan. Letter D, I don't know. The answer is, of course. The answer is letter B. He is removing the father's wrath. That was primarily what he was doing. In no sense was he paying a debt to Satan. God never owed anything to Satan, although that's a false teaching that's come up over and over in the church. And if you don't know church history, you might fall to that. Jesus paid nothing to Satan, even though Kenneth Copeland says he did. Kenneth Copeland, the popular uh, TV preacher, needs to sit down and be quiet because he does not know what he's talking about. There was no debt paid to Satan. God was satisfying God's anger at the cross. And here this sacrifice is the greatest of all offerings. Christians cannot do this. There's no way we could have satisfied God's anger. Which is why hell must be eternal. Christ had to do it and it demonstrates his love for us. Now let me ask, can Christians in any sense sacrifice? They cannot atone for sins. But every missionary is sacrificing when he says, let me leave my culture, my people. Let me learn a new language. Let me learn a new way of life, often among poorer areas. And let me find a way to bring the gospel to those people. Look in verse fifteen. How do we see that Christ has loved? In verse fifteen, he does not call us slaves but friends. He's raised us up to be friends. Raised to friends. This is amazing. I will remind you here that that word "friend" is the word that means love. In fact, the Bible commonly says that the father loves the son with this same Greek word, phileo. God loves the son with this friendship love. And the son loves the father this way. And the son loves believers. And believers have this same love for Christ, this friendship love, as some people have called it. He raised us up to be friends. But what had we been? Give me some words that describe what we had been before he raised us up. Give me some words. What are some words that describe, describe the way we were before he raised us up? Dead. Rebels. Enemies. Enemies. Children of Satan. We had rotten and corrupt hearts. It's as if he looks at us and says, do you love me? And we hold up the the M16 and say, I hate you. And he says, won't you come to me? I'll never come to you. I despise you. No, come join my church and believe in me and rest in me. Rest in you? I want no rest in you. I want myself. If I could, I would exterminate you. If I had arms and hands and a hammer, I would put you on a cross and kill you. And to that person, he says... Be my friend. What love is this? These are the people he raised up. Look in verse 15. What's the second evidence that Christ loves us in verse 15? He doesn't call us slaves. I'll put that with the friends. All the things that I heard from my father, I made known to you. He revealed secrets. He revealed secrets to these people. How do we know that Christ loves us? Because he shows us amazing, beautiful, and glorious secrets. It was hidden from the foundation of the world that Christ would bind up people in himself. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 to 5. It was never known. It couldn't have been known. It could not. No one could ever look at the spider and say, if I just look carefully at the spider, I'll understand that God himself will take flesh and tie up all these people in himself through faith. You can never learn that. He revealed those secrets to us because he's full of love. He didn't have to, but he did it out of love. Look at verse 16. Where do we see the love there? How do we see Christ's love in verse 16? Simply, quickly. Chose. chose us. Number five, He chose us. We need to pay close attention to the grammar because some people have a difficult time with this. Look down in verse 16. You did not choose me. Is that clear? We were not the ones doing the choosing. Who was the one doing the choosing? He was the one doing the choosing. Now, let's be clear. This does not mean we did not choose Jesus. It means we did not choose him first. Everyone who goes to heaven chose Jesus, but no one will get to heaven and say, yeah, I chose him. I called out to him and said, hey, hey, notice down here. I'm, I'm over here. You saved those guys, but you missed me. No one will ever get there. Everyone who gets to heaven will come and fall and say, you didn't forget me. You thought of me. When you passed over so many others, you didn't forget me. George Whitfield said, If Jesus knew Zacchaeus before the foundation of the world, he wouldn't miss him up in a tree. And if Jesus knew you, he can't forget you. If you're hidden in Dakota... If you're gone down in some other place, if you move across the ocean, he won't forget you if he picked you before the foundation of the world. This is a hard doctrine for some people. But I ask you just to take what Jesus said because Jesus says things that are very blunt and he doesn't give all the uh, complex details of Paul. He'll just say, don't think you chose me, I did it. He says in John 6 verse 44, no one can come to the Father unless, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father does what? Holds him. And the, in that same chapter, just 20 verses later, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father gives him faith. John 6, 65. Now those are amazing statements. Don't ever think, I did it. One of the worst things about the left behind books, a series of novels that attempt to show the end of the world. One of the worst things about those books I didn't read them all. I read little portions of a few of them. And in one of the last books, book 12 or something, uh, there's a scene where all the believers finally make it to heaven. And they're talking to each other. And as they're talking to each other in heaven, the one looks at the other and says, I'm so glad I made the right choice. No, no, no. You'll never say that in heaven. When you get to heaven, you'll put your hand over your mouth and only remove it to say, oh Christ, you, you loved me. Don't ever be confused and forget or hate this doctrine. This is a beautiful doctrine of the love of God. If he had not done this, you would never have chosen him. Look in verse 16. There's several here we've got to pull out. Three more quickly. How do we see that a believer... Loves Jesus in verse 16. He bears fruit. How can you tell that someone is a true Christian? Fruit. Their fruit will remain. Again in verse 16, how can you tell that someone's a true Christian? They will pray. That's right there in verse 16. Do you talk more about praying than you actually pray? We've all prayed once in our lives or twice. And so for all the future days, we say, oh, and we'll refer to that praying as if we're some great prayer warrior. Aren't we tempted to do that? That's really just pride and selfishness. But actually try to keep a piece of paper and mark down the minutes that you pray this week. And you will get to the end and have a good reason to confess your sins to God. You will understand James chapter 4 verse 2. You do not have because you do not even ask. I read an article years ago, or not an article, a book. I read a chapter in a book on pastors who fall out of the ministry. And in that book, they said, most pastors pray less than five minutes a day. I thought, that's terrible. So I began to record how many minutes per day I pray on average. And I was so humbled. Do it this week. Mark down how many minutes each day of the week you pray. And you'll get to the end and maybe you'll have a little bit better picture of yourself. The picture that God has been looking at for so many years. God says one of the evidences of a believer is that they're praying and he's answering. And that's the sixth one. Sixth evidence of Christ. How do we know that Christ loves? Because he answers prayer. In verse 16, who is it that's answering the prayer? It's the Father. But in chapter 14, verse 13, it's the Son who answers the prayer. In chapter 14, verse 14, it's the Son who answers the prayer. You see, Jesus commonly answers the prayers and commonly gives. But the Son and the Father are so connected that He can use either one. If you're listening to this, what we've done is drawn on the board two different columns where Christ's love is demonstrated and also the believer's love is demonstrated. And we found there's at least five proofs that a believer really loves Jesus and at least six proofs that Jesus loves his people. And from that, we come to this conclusion that Christ, that true love always shows itself. Let me close with this final word. The love that reaches out with joy to save a sinner... And to build up a Christian, the love that he invites you to and that I call you and even command you to come to today. That love that is so inviting now in 2021 in July on a cold morning can turn around and be your enemy. In the amazing story, The Lord of the Rings, toward the very end of that book, a king goes out to battle, King Theoden, and he rides on his horse snowmane the horse takes him to victory and he kills all of his enemies until he comes up against one great enemy and the horse is so terrified by the enemy that he rears up and throws the king the enemy shoots a dart at the horse and it falls over on the king such that the same thing the horse that brought the king to victory in the end is what killed the king That is a picture of the love of God because the same love that can save a sinner now will damn a sinner in the future. How so? Because today he offers his love to you if you will sue for peace. But if you reject that offer, then in the future, his love will be directed toward the demonstration of his justice. And he so loves himself that he will love to show his justice. And all the energy that he takes to pour out to pull you to Christ today, he will pour that same and even more energy into showing his justice in the condemnation and damnation of every sinner. The difficult doctrine of the love of God should speak to your heart. And it should make you trust in Christ and make you serve him more today than you ever have. Let's bow our heads.
1: First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. But I'm going to deal with verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith We have read this book as a church, the book of uh, First Timothy last month. I hope you yes, understand the book. So, I just have the little background with the book. Uh, the book is about the, a godly, a kind of a godly church, and in chapter one. Paul told Timothy to fight the false teachers in the church, and we are trying to do that in this church. Uh, We teach the Bible, and we are trying to uh, make our members to know their Bibles. So we are trying to follow uh, what Paul told Timothy. And in chapter 2, it is a prayer that Paul told Timothy to pray. And uh, that prayer is about all people, to pray for all people. Why? Because it is God's desire to save all people. And if you notice in our pulpit prayer, we include those things. We pray for our government. We pray for other countries. We pray for sinners. Because it is God's desire, God's desire to save all people. Then in chapter 3, It is about the leadership in the church, Uh, what kind of a pastor should uh, lead the church, what kind of the deacon, and that leads us to our passage tonight, chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, it is the warning from the Holy Spirit, it is the warning from the Holy Spirit, so our introduction is what should we do if we have been warned? Like if we've been warned there is fire, or there is, the floods are coming, I believe we take whatever we can and try to run to a safe place, right? And we can even see that in this time, we have been warned about covid and people are taking uh, the safety precaution but this evening we've got this warning from the bible uh, by the holy spirit so let us see uh, this warning (coughs) and i've tried to make uh, two points from this uh, passage as i said i'm preaching i'm trying to preach in verse one Uh, Lord willing, I'll uh, finish the other one next time. Not next week, but next time. (laughs) So uh, I've, I've picked two points from this message. The danger, the warning, falling away. That is going to be our first point. And the second point is the cause. What is causing this, what will cause this falling away? So those are the two points I will try to bring to you this evening. So, in verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says. I want you to notice uh, that verb. The Spirit expressly says. Uh, This verb, that means the Spirit is talking, right? Because the Spirit (coughs) says, so it's talking. And again, I want you to notice in the next phrase that in later times, some will depart from the faith. I want you to notice this is now more than talking. This is now a prophecy. So in these two Uh, actions by the Holy Spirit, it is going to throw away the teachings that say the Holy Spirit is in it. It's going to crush that teaching. So I hope if, uh, I hope no one is holding on that in this church. But if you are, this text is going to crush that one and throw it away because he is talking and he is prophesying. So I wanted to make it clear that uh, the Holy Spirit is not, is not in it because he is talking. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? He said, he's warning us, this is the warning, he's warning us in later times some will depart from the faith. Uh, my superior always said the definition is, is very good and it makes us to understand. So I want us to understand this: the word faith. The word faith is not the means of justification, like in John chapter three, John chapter three, verse sixteen. For God so loved the world uh, that he whoever believes in him should not perish, but he have everlasting life. So that the word faith is not believing in this passage. So what is this, the word faith? The word faith uh, is a system of doctrine, or the gospel, or the truth. We can find that in the book of Jude. Uh, Jude was calling his uh, readers to fight, not to fight for the, uh, the means of justification. He was telling his believers to fight for a system of doctrine to fight for the truth, to fight for the gospel. So I want us to understand what is this faith. So the Holy Spirit is saying some will depart from the faith. So some will depart from the truth. So I want us to understand uh, this, uh, this departing and this uh, the, the 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 saying of the Holy Spirit of departing to it is the Holy Spirit is very clear. It's not this prophecy is very clear. It's not the prophecy like other false prophets. It's very clear. he's giving us the, the we some will depart, and what is the cause? So it is very clear. Some will depart. And what is the cause? The cause is in the next phrase, they are going to depart by devoting themselves to the deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So this is the, the very clear uh, prophecy. And we will see that this prophecy uh, was fulfilled. So this is a true prophet. This is a true, true prophet because we can see when Paul Wrote this letter It is uh, 1900 years ago Or more When he wrote this letter And when the Holy Spirit said Psalm 4 We saw that In chapter 1 verse uh, 119 Psalm fallen away Jimenas and Alexandra They fallen away uh, So we saw that This is the true prophecy from the Holy Spirit. And as again, we have witnessed this one, the, the, the falling away in this church or even in other churches. People had been falling away. So this, prof- this prophet is a true prophet because his words came to pass. So if we can look at this verb, the spirit expressly says it's a perfect tense. It is happened in the past and is still happening even in the future. So we have to to, to be terrified when we heard that because we saw those guys, Alexander and Jimenez, they fall they fallen fall, fall away, and we have seen, we have witnessed our, by our eyes some have fallen away and now this is the warning to us some will this is in future who are these some will it is going to be me maybe you so we have to we have to to be terrified because if this is a warning some will fall away in the future who are these some it might be you it might be me so we 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 must we must be terrified uh, about this warning, so I want us to to see uh, how do we react when we hear this? How how do we re- react when we hear we hear this warning from the Holy, from the Holy Spirit? We have to react like uh, other other believers in the Bible. When Jesus said to the believers someone is going to betray me. The believers were terrified. They look around. They say, is it me? Is it you? Is it Lord? Tell us who is, to, who is going to betray you. So this same message comes to us. Some will depart from the faith. This is a terrifying message. We have to, to, we have to look around. Is it me? Is it, is it you? Why? Because we are, we are memorizing, uh, we, last month, that, that was our last month's memory verse, Hebrews 6, verse 4 to 6. It is, for it is impossible, I, I hope I I'll put it uh, right, for it is impossible for those who have tested they have, who have tested the heavenly gifts and they've shared in the Holy Spirit and they've tested the goodness of the word of God and tested the powers of the ages to come for if they fall away to restore them it is impossible why because they are crucifying the Lord Jesus once again for their own harm so if we fall away we are crucifying again the Lord Jesus, so we must be terrified if we are Christians. Because if we are not the Christians, we are not going to be ter- terrified with this message. Because uh, there is there is uh, the warning we are going to be like we are going to be like the the unbelievers. I was I was fortunate today when I was going back home. The unbelievers, there is a warning on the packet of cigarette. That warning said, danger, smoking is harmful. But what are they doing? They ignore the warning and they're still taking out the cigarette. So I saw two. One said smoking causes cancer, but they are still smoking. The one said smoking is harmful to your health, but they're still taking the cigarettes. So are we doing that? Because this is the warning. Some who depart from the faith? Are we ignoring this? Because we have read this book together as the church, right? So when we pass, we, we reach this uh, passage. What happened to us? Were we terrified? Because this is the warning, the warning from the Holy Spirit to us that some will fall away. So we must be terrified because, again, uh, is it Hebrews 13, 10, that said, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of angry God. So we, we must be terrified if we hate this thing, because if we fall away, we are going to hell. We are going to be punished. We are going to be judged by God. So we have to take serious as believers with this warning comes in front of us, because we are being warned. We are going falling away is coming. We are not safe. If we are still alive, we are not safe because anything can happen. We are not we are still in the race. We are safe when we are on the finishing line. So we are not safe. So if we 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 are fortunate to have uh, this passage saying this to us, the Holy Spirit saying this to us because He's warning us. This is love. Because he's warning us, in future, some will fall away. So we must, well, we must not be sleepy Christians. We must be woke up. This is like a cold bucket uh, coming on us in winter. Today's cold. It's like a cold water bucket thrown in us so that we wake up. We are sleeping. Because falling away is coming. So we must, we must, we, we must be terrified when we hear these, these things. We must be terrified, and we must, we must do something when, when we hear this, this warning from the Holy Spirit. That leads me to uh, the cause. What, what is the cause that makes us to fall away? The cause is in the passage, and the cause, look, the next, look at the next verb, Uh, In verse 1, devoting. Did you see the next verb? Devoting. This is an active verb. This is not something someone is doing. So this cause is going to happen after we have done something. We are going to devote. And devotion is something like we are not going to be forced. We are willingly doing that. So, this is clear that this active verb is like we are delivering. Uh, We are taking our heart and put in a tray and delivering this heart to the uh, deceitful spirits. And say, okay, this is my heart. Because we are willingly. Because devoting is not someone who's holding a gun and say yes, come, do this. We are willingly. We are paying attention. So if you are paying attention, you say, oh, my will is on this one. So come and do everything you want. So this verb is an active verb, something we are going to do that causes us to fall. So this is the cause. If we devote to the deceitful spirit, we are going to fall away. So we must be careful about this. If we, if we devote, if we pay attention to, to these spirits, we are going to fall because we are offering ourselves as a sacrifice. I'm here. Do whatever you want. How so? I've listed three things on my list, and the first one is technology. We are devoting ourselves with technology. How so? Long ago, uh, in my phone, I deleted uh, the past years, I, I deleted the games in my phone. Why? Because I found out, like, the time I spend uh, in games, you, you, you can say, be surprised, ah, it is evening. The whole time on the phone. So not, not someone is forcing me, it's something I'm devoting to. So I found out, like, I'm devoting. So this is the kind of deceitful spirit, technology. I'm not saying the technology is bad, but I'm telling you what I have found, because what is happening in those games or video games is there, there are some levels, right? So if you play level one and say, ah, oh, no, I'm okay, there is something, that, that desire in you, they say, oh, I, I want to go to level two. <laughs> and after level two, there's level three. So there's something again. So you end up doing nothing. And I, I, I was not reading my Bible with that. So I, I, I asked it myself, this thing is taking much of my time. So for me, because I'm not strong enough, I don't know you. Because some of the people, they know, oh, I'm strong enough, I can, I can handle it. I can know my time to play, I can know my time to read. my. So I'm not strong enough. Then I said, I have to steal it so that I know for sure there's nothing. So now I'm, I, I'm, I'm safe, because there's nothing in my phone, it's only the recordings, and the application I can use. I'm not saying the, tele- the, the technology is good, because I've got it. I've got the phone. But I say, it, in that phone, there was a deceitful spirit, the game. So it was causing me not to do anything. I was busy. After, If, if you can find your free time, just free time, you just pick the phone. Then you started. So I found technology is a, a, a deceitful a deceitful thing. So I've deleted uh, the, the, the games. And the other thing, the Bible in the fall. I don't know. I saw some of the people, they've got it. But I found out like it's a temptation again. Because do you think if the message comes while you are reading the Bible, are you going to ignore the message? Like the WhatsApp message comes in. It's going to be difficult so I found out like no I have to delete the Bible I'm not saying delete yours uh, I'm, I'm, I'm saying what I've experienced because it's a temptation the preacher is preaching the word and the message while you are reading I don't think you are going to push off the message you are going to click so you see th- those deceitful spirit they, how they work. so I found out like I have to delete that the Bible I have to delete the games because I'm not strong. I'm not strong enough. So be careful with these deceitful uh, spirits because they work in many ways to deceive us. So be careful with that one. And again, the Bible tells us about these uh, deceitful spirits. We can find out in Matthew 7.15. He calls them the false teachers. The fo- what kind of the false teachers? They are in the sheepish clothing, but inward they are ravenous wolves. So what they do, they uh, do goto, but in their heart there is nothing. So you can find that on these preachers on television. So they, 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 they use the Bible, but yet they they are not... There is no God at heart, so you must you must be careful with this because the Bible expressly said to us that they are sheep's in a clothing. Uh, they are sheep's, but inside they are wolves. So we must we must we must be careful with that because I can call them they are sangomas in suits because uh, there is no difference. Because what are they doing is the same what the Sangomas are doing, so but it's only they know how to deceive people, so they make a plan they are using the Bible to deceive people, so be careful, be careful on those things. so I have this question: are you related on 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 any of these things I have listed uh, up there before before I reach this one are you related? are you devoting yourself to the video games? Are you paying attention to the false teachers? Because if you are, you are in great danger. You are the part of this group, some. Because they are not all. And I have realized that if, when the Bible mentions some, yeah, you must, must be careful because if it is all, you are going to relax it. Ah, everyone. So some, so you have to you have to think, am I? Am I not? So you have to work hard there. Are you the part of these some people? So if you are related on these things I have mentioned before, technology, the games in the phone, even the Bible, I don't know if you are strong enough, and the false teachers, I urge you to, to run away before they swallow you. They will, because this is their plan to to devour us. This is their plan to devour us. So you, I urge you to run away, run to Christ, humble yourself and run to Christ. So that leads me to, this is not second point, That this is a sub-point, the teachings of the Holy Spirit. They devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is kind of similar, but it's different. Demons are powerful, and people they underestimate them. They are very powerful. You you you, you can understand from those uh, people I said uh, the Sangomas in suits. They underestimate the demons. They always say like demons are the bunnies or the kittens, but demons are powerful. If you look what they have done in Genesis chapter three to Eve, you will see that uh, demons are very powerful. Do you think you are strong enough to stand? Let's go to Genesis chapter three. I want us to see what happened there with the demons. Genesis chapter 3. It is, the whole, it is not the whole chapter. It's from verse 1 to verse 4. So that we can understand what, what happened. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord has made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat it of any tree in the garden. Now the woman is replying the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the true, of the fruit. We shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall tu- shall you touch it, lest you die. Now the serpent. The serpent said, to the woman, you will surely not die. Did you see that? Go back to chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. Are you there? So this is God who is talking. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did you see that? So God said, if you eat the this tree, you die. Did you see the the, 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 the serpent what he does in verse 4? In verse you not surely he just twisted. He started the question by saying what God said so that he draws your attention. So you must be careful on that. That's why I said those guys, they use the Bible on their agenda. So you you must be careful on that because they bring the Bible while inside their agenda is not the Bible. There is no love. They are up to something. So the, 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 the serpent just twisted a little bit and Eve was gone. So do you think you are strong enough to stand against the, 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 the evil spirit, the demons. I don't think you are... It's just like uh, cutting margarine with a what knife. It's very easy even little Cameron can do that. They can do that to you, to us, because I'm part of this, sir. We are not strong enough to the... De- demons are strong. So these uh, Sangomas in suits, they say, they, 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 they play with demons like they don't know. They don't underestimate the demons, because they are powerful, they, they deceit Eve. The Bible said, in the morning God was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. They were fellowshipping with God, but look what the demon does to them. Those who were fellowshipping with God, do you think you are strong enough to stand against the demon? I don't think so. So we must be very careful because this is their agenda. They want to deceive us. They want to, they want to, 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 to devour us. That reminds me about the story uh, Pastor said about the, the music of the demons on the island. Like, if you hear that music, you are going, by yourself you are going to turn, and they devour you, right? So we must be careful. We must put works. He mentioned to, that men put works... In in others, those who are handling the boat, and him he was tied so that he can not do anything. So we must be clever like that because these guys are serious. They have got their agenda. We are not strong. We are not strong enough. They they every day they 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 have their plans to deceive us and win our souls. And first Corinthians chapter ten verse twelve. it it warns us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you are strong, you are not strong. You are going to fall. They, they, they make you fall. Also, the, uh, take, this, take a picture of this. Uh, long ago, the traps, when, when people were trying to trap the, the rats, they were making, if you know that one, they make the thing with the spring, and a metal thing with some teeth and you can pull it like a trap, then you put like peanut butter or something attracts the the the, the rats right, and you put it and the rats were clever, and they develop another thing again they put like red poison long ago is we, we know that red poison like like those black seeds, so there's poison in it, and the the, the the rats are were clever so they are inventing everything. If, they, if this one is not working, then, so these are like the, 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 the false teachers, the demon, they invent. I've got this. You see, this is the red poison. You see, this thing. Now it's different. They invent another. It's like a chocolate to the, to the, to the, to the red, but there's poison in this one. So it's like these this, uh, false teachers, they are doing this to us. They are inventing. In Zim, there is a book. They put like glue on that book, so you put food in between. the 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 the, the when the red runs comes on the on, on top of the book, it's going to be glued, and you can find the the red there. So, it's they are keep on inventing to to trap the red. So it's the same with these demons. They are inventing things to trap us. So we must, if we had this uh, warning in front of us. We must be careful. We are not strong enough to stand with the demons. How can we stand with them? We are, we are, we are fortunate we have Christ. We must humble ourselves and come to Christ because he crushed the biggest of the demons on the cross. He, when he died for us on the sins, it was the victory for us. He crushed, he stood on top of the demon. To, to show he, he, he have won. So, by ourselves, we are not strong enough. We must run to Christ. We must humble ourselves and Christ will fight for us. Let us close in prayer.